Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fowler. I'd like to give my listeners a bit of background info about you and your career before we start. So Dr. Ryan Fowler grew up in West Virginia where he completed his undergraduate from West Virginia University and medical school from Marshall University. He is board certified in family practice and completed a sports medicine fellowship. He is also board certified in integrative and holistic medicine and believes holistic health helps get to the root of the problem to improve and maintain the body's condition, allowing it to achieve optimal health. After graduating from medical school, Dr. Ryan joined the Navy, traveling around the world, including a humanitarian deployment throughout Central and South America. He gained valuable experience treating the US Marine and US Navy warriors, enabling them to get back into the field faster. In addition to treating Marine warriors, he also treats weekend warriors and has experience with pediatric musculoskeletal injury, adult joint pain, and elderly osteoarthritis. He found his way to the regenerative medicine field, which has shown the ability to improve the MSK structure and thus give greater function to patients with acute injuries or even chronic pain problems. Dr. Ryan is also passionate about his own exercise and health routine, works out regularly in his home gym, rock climbs, mountain bikes, and he believes strength and fitness is one of the most powerful tools against typical aging and sickness. Couldn't agree more with that. His medical practice is called Equilibrium Squared Holistic in Temple, Texas, where he resides with his wife and three young sons. So today we're gonna to be talking about sports nutrition, sports medicine, and the different holistic modalities that support repair and recovery. And I'm really looking forward to today's podcast and all the ways in which holistic modalities and therapies can be used to support muscle and skeletal repair and recovery. If you're new to my podcast, you may not know this, but I have five grown kids, four boys and a girl. And my four boys are high level athletes, one ex-college hockey player, two college hockey players now and a football player. And my youngest just signed his pro hockey player contract at age 16 and he's now 18. So no college for him and he's pretty stoked. Needless to say, they have had numerous sports injuries. When I was adding them up, I think it came out to like 15. It could be more though, but at least 15 that I, that I remember. And needless to say, I am so good at filling up that ice machine. <laughs> and they're all thriving now, they're all doing great. But I look back on the journey. I mean, they some of them had triple hip surgery, triple shoulder surgery. And I wonder, you know, what else could we have done to help mitigate the injuries in the first place? So sports medicine has come such a long way in just a few years since our last surgery in our family. And I'm so excited to hear more from Dr. Fowler. So Dr. Fowler, before we start, Tell us how you found your way to sports medicine and integrative medicine coming from your time serving in the, in the Navy. Well, uh, it's kind of a twofold journey, but um, in family medicine, I loved making relationships with people and they would come back on a regular basis and I would really get to know them and be part of their family. The frustrating part was every time they came back, they seemed to be worse and required another pill 
to fix them. And it just wasn't very satisfying. I didn't feel like um, that was really what I was called to do. I wanted really to help people get back to health, not to stay semi-sick and, you know, out of the hospital. Um, and so that pushed me more towards sports medicine, where the average person that comes into the office really does want to get better. So they're going to do whatever you tell them. And, you know, a lot of injuries are acute, and they do get better with treatment. And so it was kind of a more positive um, short-term thing than what I was seeing in family medicine. So that's what led me to sports medicine. And then kind of how I got into integrative medicine is um, really a friend started CrossFit and often what comes with CrossFit is the paleo diet. And, you know, someone telling me what you eat matters back then, I was like, really? And I thought he was crazy. And I looked into it and there was really a lot behind it and started it. And I've now been probably eating some form of paleo, gluten-free, healthy diet for at least 15 years. And that really led into the integrative side where I found other things that could help people heal and regenerative injections and um, really the whole holistic integrative approach to healing. So really those two events kind of put me where I am today. And it's not been the, the quickest of journeys um, because you're not taught really any of this in medical school. So a lot of self-learning and and uh, reading and training on my own, so. Right, it's so common when I speak to different doctors and practitioners that they find their way to integrative health through a personal experience. And like yours was a personal experience with your friend who introduced you to paleo and you just sort of went up that ladder. So it's really interesting. And I, I certainly hope that healthcare in the future um, includes functional medicine or integrative health in their in their practice in their studies you know it's so important i love that you're all about exercise and strength building and how it relates to a person's longevity why are our muscles referred to the longevity organ what does that even mean i think people are shocked to find out that i steer them away from cardio and towards strength training and uh, there's a few ways I try to explain it to them. One, one of the easiest ways is if you think about as you get older, most elderly people see have lost muscle mass. And that's really what puts them up to kind of die from common diseases like influenza, pneumonia, that kind of thing, because they just don't have any reserve. But, you know, muscle mass is an organ in itself, and it's one of the most powerful organs. It's a metabolic organ. It's a hormonal organ. Um, it, you know helps with movement and function. And so I think it's one of the most crucial and overlooked portions of health. And we've gotten into this cardio craze where the thing that's gonna make you healthier, quote unquote, is to start running. And I couldn't really disagree with that more. So I really steer my patients towards strength training. And I felt even in myself, such a big difference with the way I've been strength training for a decade or more. So. Right, absolutely. So you started off answering this question talking about sarcopenia. And so many people do not understand what sarcopenia is, which is a disease of the elderly. It's when you're walking down the street and you see elderly and they look so frail and so sick and, and just like they could just fall over if you blew on them. And that is something that we really don't want happening to us. When does something like sarcopenia, when does that even start becoming an issue in someone's life? And when should we start thinking about that? Yeah, I think you said a disease of the elderly, but probably it really starts maybe even as early as your 30s and 40s. 
especially if you're not actively trying to um, keep that muscle. You know, definitely, I'm sure studies would show 50s and 60s muscle loss is definitely lost, but I would imagine even before that. Um, um, so it's really kind of a lifelong thing. We should really be teaching kids about strength training like they used to when gym class was around and push-ups and pull-ups and athletic tests and uh, I don't know if you remember what was it called the presidential fitness test I don't mm -hmm. I don't even think they do any of those kind of things anymore but it really should be taught at an early age and it should be a lifelong pursuit um, but for people that are listening that haven't thought about this there's never a bad time to start you right. can start at any age and you can pick this up and make a huge difference in your life um, but if you're in your 30s and your 40s and you're listening to this and you don't do strength exercise I would highly advocate that you start Right. Let's just say a patient comes into you into your office, <clears throat> and they've been—they're a cardio addict. They go on the stairmaster, they go on the treadmill. I mean, I—I I see it in my building in Chicago. We have a gym here, and I see the same folks coming down day after day, just hopping on that treadmill and walking like a turtle. By the way, they're not even breaking a sweat. And then they get off 25 minutes later and and go back to their apartment. And I think what was that even for, right? So what's the conversation that you have with that patient that comes in and they're a runner and they, that's all they do. What do you say to them? How do you get them to open up their mind to absorb other information about resistance training? Um, I think that can be a very tough conversation for someone that's a cardio addict and they love running and that sort of thing. But probably in my mind, the easiest way to break that barrier is to ask them, how many times have you been injured? How many overuse injuries have you had? And they'll say, well, not many. And then you really drill down into it. And I'll say, oh, I had to take two weeks off last month. And last year I had plantar fasciitis. And two years ago I had patellar tendonitis and whatever. If they really think about it and they're honest, you can't be a runner without injuries. And so I try to reach that as a subject. Hey, if you start strength training, you'll have less injuries. You'll be able to do more. Your function will be better. Your form will be better. Oh, and by the way, you'll perform better, meaning you can run faster and longer and do things easier. So I think that's probably the easiest way to break that very difficult conversation. Yeah, I love that you're using what in the world of functional medicine, health coaching, which is what I am. I love that you're using what we call open-ended questions. You're asking your patient, what does it feel like? Where, what is your experience? So many times we go to traditional, conventional medical doctors, and they have such the expert approach on everything. They want you to do A, B, and C instead of inquiring why this person is, has created this habit that might not be the best habit for them, but to help them become self motivated to change the way that they're exercising. So I really commend you for that. Um, so you brought up the fact that our muscle mass and muscle strength start becoming reduced as we age. And I have down here, it says older adults lose approximately 1% of muscle mass and 3% of muscle strength each year and predisposes them to disease, which we talked about. I want to talk about the muscle and brain health in particular. What is that connection and why does our brain health depend on building muscle tissue? Well, I think, um, you know, more research is backing up the, the concept when you think about it, it isn't really that off the wall because your brain causes your muscles to move. Um, but there is a, a, a connection between mental health and movement. And if you move and do things, you feel better, your brain functions better, 
your cognitive ability can go up, your memory can go up. And so that is a form of exercise for your brain. And I even talked to elderly patients and Alzheimer's patients about this as well, that, you know, if you're trying to keep your brain healthy and function your brain, movement is one of the best things that you can do. Um, so I think we just forget, we think, you know, this muscle has nothing to do with my brain, but that's how it works. There's a direct connection. And so when this is healthy, this is healthy and, and, and vice versa. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually am a carrier of the Alzheimer's gene along with three of my five kids and we are all weight gym rats. Like that's all we, we love to get in the gym. I actually have a hard time doing cardio because I love just building that muscle tissue. And as a woman going through menopause, and I work with a lot of women going through perimenopause and menopause, it is even more important. It helps us maintain that hormonal balance as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get on to like how you manage all of your patients' sports injuries. Um, so the focus of exercise should be on resistance training, build a strong body, stay flexible, work on functional movements, and try to avoid those injuries, but injuries happen. And um, on your website, you talk about some of the alternative protocols that you use in the healing process, such as rock blades, rock tape, cupping, prolotherapy, PRP, and other things. Can you share some specific examples of injuries that you see that benefit the most from some of these protocols and then elaborate a little bit more on some of these protocols? Well, let me think about this for a second. So um, one of the most common injuries that I've been seeing lately is a tennis elbow, mm. um, which is scientifically called uh, lateral epicondylitis. Um, and that just means it's uh, a tendinosis. We used to call them tendinitis, but now we kind of just realize that it's not really inflamed or um, for the entire time because something like this can last several years. Um, so I think there's a lot of alternative approaches that you can use to treat this. And um, when you get um, pain along a tendon for a prolonged period of time, the muscles don't work as well because obviously the tendon is connected to the muscle. And so treating the muscle can have benefits on the tendon and vice versa. So you can do that by using rock blades, by taping, for instance, um, rock tape or KT tape um, is, this is kind of goes back to your other question, is more like taping the brain. So it affects the pain so that the muscle can work better. So when you apply that to mm -hmm. the skin, it changes how your body feels pain because it's feeling unconsciously the skin being pulled by the tape. And so it's affecting your brain and how it fires the muscle. It will fire the muscle better and it would work better and overall decrease pain. Um, so those would be a couple of direct examples. What would, you know, be, what would be a more conventional approach versus these more integrative approaches? Um, kind of bracing would be a really conventional approach. Mm. A, a corticosteroid injection would be a more conventional approach. Some, hopefully, of the more advanced practitioners would give a home exercise program where you use eccentric training, which is contraction of the muscle and lengthening of it at the same time, which has been shown to um, change the tendinosis back into normal um, structure. And even with um, some of the things I talk about, and especially the home exercise program with eccentric training, um, can be beneficial. But there are a lot of people that either due to how they're living 
which is probably the most common, like just not living in accordance with how we're supposed to live, an inflammatory diet, inflammatory lifestyle, too much stress, too little mm -hmm. sleep, not enough water, all of those things, they just won't get better. And so that's where the regenerative injections, I think, really shine because they can help someone um, get over that hump, really, in addition to you know changing their normal lifestyle that's going to promote healing as well. So something like stem cells, which everybody's heard of, is you know a regenerative type injection, and and prolotherapy is where it kind of all started, and that's been around the longest and probably the most is known about that, I would say. And you know prolotherapy and PRP and then stem cells are kind of just on a continuum of different types of regenerative type injections that can be used in tendons, in joints, um, muscle tears. So uh, I've actually, I'm very familiar with PRP and stem cells, but I am not familiar with prolotherapy. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, that's kind of where it all started. So it's been around maybe 70 or 80 years and they theorized that injecting an irritant would cause quote unquote inflammation and would cause the body to heal itself. Hmm. And that maybe not be entirely true as far as mechanism, but the same procedure is still used. It's a dextrose injection, so sugar that's injected typically around ligaments and the bases of ligaments. And they have shown in studies that it actually repairs the ligament and helps it grow stronger. Um, so that's kind of where regenerative medicine started as far as injections. And then I think the really good practitioners understand that and know how to do prolotherapy well, because that'll help the other more advanced things work better. If that makes sense, it's kind of the. So if if prolotherapy uh, is based on dextrose slash sugar, we're all yeah. told to eat an anti-inflammatory based diet to keep inflammation down. So you're basically injecting this person to create inflammation so that the body can then heal itself. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I mean we're told inflammation is bad, and it is when it's chronic. But acute right. inflammation is how everyone heals. That's a process right. of everything. Right. And so if that process gets interrupted either by your lifestyle or by repetitive injury from overuse or sickness or some other reason, it'll, it can get stuck there. And so anyway, you can help the body get back to its healing process through the dextrose, through the PRP, through the stem cells, whatever it may be. I think that's where you really see healing and improvement in their overall condition. So, so when a patient comes in, do you start like at the bottom of the ladder, maybe with something like the rock tape or cupping and then move your way up if you don't see healing moving yeah, forward? It, it might vary on how long the injury has been present and or what the injury is. Some injuries respond better to different treatments. But I try to incorporate a little of all of that into my treatment. I, it's not a one-time one thing based decision. And it's also not always my decision. I always, it's a shared decision. I have to meet the patient where they are, explain to them the risks and benefits and let them decide what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes they decide not to do what I would suggest and that's their decision. They can do what they want ultimately. But I try to incorporate, you know, all of those things, a holistic approach to injury, including nutrition, sleep, rest, hydration, because the more things you can add to it, the likelier, higher likelier you are going to heal. Absolutely. 
I want to I want to unpack some of these um, compounds like PRP, stem cells, exosomes, and growth factors. So PRP was the first um, compound that I became familiar with many years ago when all my boys were having their surgeries. They were getting PRP injections into um, well, they mostly had labral tears, so they were using PRP injections post operation, post surgery. Yeah. It didn't do that much for them, but can you just speak to what PRP is for those listeners out there that have never heard of it, how it works, what it is, and why it would work and why maybe sometimes it wouldn't work? So PRP and stem cells are both a product of your body that is um, uh, used to promote healing in your own body. So platelet-rich plasma is what PRP stands for. So basically we draw blood and spin it down and separate the red blood cells from the other material, which is typically platelets and the other growth factors and growth hormones and reparative fractures that are typically involved in that portion of the blood. And some of those platelets um, are able to change and, and cause other function and or there may be stem cells in that part as well. And so that is spun down and typically taken out and injected back into um, a certain uh, injury location. Other people have used it for other things as well, which is probably above the discussion of this podcast, but stem cells is a very similar thing. So you would draw bone marrow out of a bone, spin it down, and you would get a similar um, substance of growth factors, growth hormones, but then you would actually have a lot more stem cells in that than you would the other. So it's a more pure uh, selection of these cells that, that can become other cells uh, that you're injecting into the injury. So it could become a little tendon if it needed to, if it was instructed to. So now stem cells can actually come from more places than bone marrow, right? And, and is my understanding correct that dependent on where you harvest the stem cells from is, depends on how and where you can use them? They're not all for everything. Um, they do come in multiple places. Um, there was procedures using fat to spin that down mm -hmm. and to make um, stem cells. It, and they've used embryonic tissue and stem cells. And I don't think either of those are necessarily as effective. And the governing body, which I think maybe the FDA changed some rules recently and essentially people shouldn't be using fat anymore right. and almost entirely should be using bone marrow right now. And it's probably better that way because it's probably more effective anyway. Um, I think, that, I, I yeah. think that the FDA was saying about the fat, um, taking it from your fat is that if you take it from your fat and then you're injecting it into another part of your body, it's now a drug and it's an unapproved drug. So if you're taking, it doesn't make sense, but if they take it from your fat, they want them to replace it back into your fat. So what's the point of that, right? So it, uh, you know, hopefully things will change in the future because I know stem cells are just incredible. I've actually used PRP and stem cells um, when I was going through perimenopause and oh. my, my hair was shedding because of the hormonal changes. And I used injections in my scalp. It was so painful. But I think now I'm finally seeing, you know, the positive effects of it. But man, that was really painful. Yeah, <laughs> but PRP, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but they're, it's, you know, they're used in so many other places, such as, you know, 
erectile dysfunction with stem yeah. cells and and so on. So really cool stuff. What about peptide therapy? Um, does peptide therapy play a role in regenerative medicine? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I've been um, experimenting with some peptides and using it for healing here recently. Um, and a peptide to explain to your listeners is really just a part of a protein. So proteins are big portions of quote unquote peptides. And when they cut them down and find this one does this, they um, are able to manufacture those. That's kind of where that's come from. And, but you also find peptides in things that you eat. I mean, there are peptides in healthy foods like beef liver and things we might not know a whole lot about, but there are definitely people out there talking about, you know, peptides aren't just a pill you take or an injection you do. But yes, I've been using some peptides um, and I've seen some pretty good results. I haven't quite used a lot to be... Um, super um, enthused about them, but I think it's an exciting new thing as well as exosomes, yeah. I, I think peptide therapy is definitely the way of the future and um, stacking all the different peptides are so cool. I, I, I wish I could get my brain wrapped around how it all works, but I'm slowly getting better, but it is a really interesting part of science. What about growth factors and exosomes? Yeah, uh, exosomes was a new thing to me just a few years ago, um, and I'm not incredibly knowledgeable about exosomes. I need to do my own study and learn some more. Um, growth factors, you know, I, I hear people using growth hormones and some other things, um, and I, there's maybe not entirely I'm on board yet with that. I need to do my own research, so I probably don't have a great answer for that question. Okay, and then when you decide to use some of these regenerative medicine protocols, is this taking the place of surgery? And at what point do you say, okay, now we have to move towards surgery? Well, that's definitely my goal with a lot of people because I think people go through unnecessary surgery, which sets them up for more unnecessary surgery, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, a goal in a lot of people is to keep you away from a surgeon until you need one. And there are times when you do, for instance, um, if you have an injury as you're younger, that sets you up, for instance, like an ACL tear, and you'll be told you need to replace your ACL and repair it. And so they do surgery. Well, those two events set you up for arthritis. Both of those events have been shown to increase your arthritis risk by a ton. And so invariably that knee will have arthritis down the road. And then the ultimate endpoint in a lot of people's mind is knee replacement. Well, I think that's where you can use some of these um, therapies to either delay or maybe even avoid a knee surgery like that. And I think as science progresses, I'm hopeful more of that will, will happen and less joint replacements will happen. But that's kind of a tough road to climb when you look at all the other vested interests in it. But I'm hopeful. So back to my boys' um, labral tear surgeries, which I think was about 75% of their surgeries, shoulders and hips. And sometimes they had to have triple procedures done. <clears throat> and then they had the PRP. If I would have brought them to you, what would your gut tell you to start with rather than rushing to surgery right away? Well, so... 
when you think about labral tears, this is going to be a little complex, but a labrum is a essentially a washer um, stabilizing structure inside um, big unstable joints, your hip and your shoulder. And the reason that they get torn up is often um, repetitive uh, activities with underlying muscle imbalances may be wrought on by those repetitive activities and not focusing on other mobility and other strength training and that kind of stuff. And it's hard to entirely pin it down, but um, so the underlying cause is still there. If you go and do a surgery, what the surgery is typically going to do is cut that piece out. Occasionally, they'll be able to sew it in, but since the labral isn't um, highly supplied with blood, it doesn't heal very well. So often the only thing they can do is cut it out. Meniscus could be looked at as kind of a labral too, even though it's kind of a little different. Um, so what my focus would be on is to get to the root of the problem, which may be some muscle imbalance, some um, mobility issues, and to address that as well as some regenerative injections, which have been shown to provide healing and improve symptoms in those kind of conditions where they might not, A, have to have the surgery, um, which, like I said, leads you to more arthritis as you go down the road, and or B, have that portion cut out, which will obviously potentially lead to more arthritis down the road as well. So I think trying to get at the root of the problem and healing it itself rather than cutting it out and the quick fix is really where I would try to approach something like that differently, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it, will there be a point where you say, all right, now we just have to perform surgery? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, um, you know, regenerative injections and this kind of protocol doesn't help everybody. There are definitely people that I do my best and they don't get better. And if the only other option is to see a surgeon and get that cut out, which may give them some relief in the short and the long term, then that is a, an option I would definitely push a patient towards. Um, and then there, there are people where their condition is far enough along that I don't know that I can provide them a lot of help. So there are definitely people where, you know, the regenerative type protocol isn't really their best option. So if somebody has gone through surgery and they're still experiencing pain and discomfort and they come to you after they've had the surgery, can they use PRP and stem cells as preventative treatments moving forward? They can, depending on the surgery. So if there's implanted material, like some sort of uh, artificial joint injections, could cause an infection, which would be a devastating problem. So mm. in that sense, no. But if it's just been some sort of removal or clean out or scrape out or however they describe it, then yeah, someone could use regenerative injections if they chose to. Mm. And all of these regenerative medicine options, the ones that I know of are not covered by insurance or right. So functional medicine is basically cash pay. Um, do you think insurance companies in the future are going to cover these procedures and treatments eventually? And, and what do people do if they can't afford all of this cash pay, but they still want to stay in a holistic environment, a holistic way of life? Yeah, the whole insurance question is a big question. I get that often in my, in my business. Um, insurance isn't necessarily a good thing, unfortunately. Um, 
because they can dictate your care and decide which medicine you get or which surgery and all kinds of issues. And I understand that people pay for their insurance and they don't want to think they're paying for nothing. But ultimately, I would wish people would think of health insurance more like car insurance. And so you use the health insurance for some devastating major medical issue. And otherwise, I pay for my oil exchanges. I change my wiper blades. I mm. take it to the car wash. I get it detailed every once in a while. I clean it out. Those are all so things that come out of That's a great pocket. analogy. Love my that. My auto insurance does not pay for that. But right. I still have to pay for auto insurance in case someone crashes into me. So if people thought of their health insurance more like that, it'd be a lot easier of a connection that it's not that bad to pay what looks like an exorbitant amount of money for a stem cell injection. But when you compare that to the $40,000 bill for a knee replacement, maybe it doesn't look as bad as you think. So insurance doesn't cover them now. And some places I've heard they did. And I don't know if they still do. But frankly, I don't know if we really want them to. Um, I think insurance handling and controlling medicine isn't really always that good of a thing. My practice, even my primary care patients are outside of insurance and I'm usually able to save them money even if they pay for insurance. I can get them cheaper procedures, cheaper imaging, cheaper labs by using cash rather than using your insurance. So, Right. I mean, I tend to think about traditional conventional medical care as acute care. Really yeah. great for acute care if you have cancer or you broke your leg, you know, something like that, right? But when we talk about healthcare, I look at more functional medicine and integrative approaches, and, and you have to often pay for those. And you're right, it is a mindset. Um, and many people struggle with getting out of that mindset. But your business model is unique. It's a membership-based business model, which in the city of Chicago, we have that too. We refer to it as concierge um, medicine. And you, I was reading on your website that you really strive to make all of these options affordable to your patients. Have you been successful at that? Do you find, um, what are your struggles in this type of business model? Well, let me go to concierge versus what I do. So the basis of what I do, I do a lot of things, but my clinic is built on a direct primary care model or DPC. And so it's basically concierge for everybody. So concierge gives the care that I give, but they charge a larger monthly membership. And in addition, concierge typically charges your insurance. So they're like double dipping and getting paid a lot of money to do very personalized care that would be provided by a direct primary care provider. And so with direct primary care, you pay a smaller fee, but you still have direct access to me by phone, text, email, call me in the middle of the night if you want. You know, I can do house calls. You can come in and visit me as many times during a month without any co-pays and you still get the same care. And then I can help with cheaper imaging, cheaper labs, but I'll, we also do kind of the integrative functional approach and my regenerative medicine injections and all that. So we do a lot of different things here. Um, it has been very successful and we're in a really kind of a small town in Texas. And so it's a little bit of a mindset change for people yeah. and they still want to go back to the insurance and I'm paying for this. And, and, you know, that's really kind of a hard thing to break because it's so ingrained in everyone's head. Um, but now there's health chairs coming out that help people kind of, merge both together and I'm hopeful there's some new insurance options that'll be um, a lot 
cheaper that you could pair with something like I do. Really part of the solution would be if the government would just let everybody get an HSA. And if you had an HSA, you mm -hmm. could use it for whatever you want. And if you didn't have to pair it with a high deductible plan and you could get like a catastrophic plan that was very cheap, that'd be mm -hmm. the option. That'd be the best option. But, you yeah. know, the government controls these things and they dictate what we do, which I hate. Yeah. Yeah. I love seeing these, uh, this new business model popping up though. I think it's um, really going to also be the way of the future in medical care. Um, let's talk about sports nutrition because now you're healing people right? You're doing all these amazing protocols and treatments and sending everyone home. And we certainly don't want them to turn around and come right back, right? We want them to, you know, really engage in this healthy lifestyle, like we were talking about. Do you teach your patients about sports nutrition at all? Does anyone ever come in and they want to know about BCAAs and EAAs and which protein powder to shake, I mean, to drink? Yeah, we definitely talk about nutrition a lot here. That's that's where it all started, Joe. It started with the paleo diet. So I always talk about nutrition and healing. And uh, one of the big things I push is the, the power of protein. I think people forget about protein and we talk about that a lot. I talk about supplements and protein powder some, but I kind of like, I would like my patients to eat natural food more than those kind of things anyway. But yeah, nutrition is definitely a big part of what we do here for sure. Do you have people come in and they want to talk about more high-end supplements, like how to use the amino acids around their workouts? Do you get really particular or is it more like a general type of diet? I've gotten a few people come in for more performance related stuff, mm -hmm. um, specific to say triathlon training and they wanted me to tweak their regimen and actually enjoy doing that stuff. But I, Mm -hmm. I would say I don't get a lot of people coming to me for that. I, I wish they did because that's the kind of stuff I enjoy. I'm I'm a self-obsessed biohacker and I love to try mm -hmm. stuff on myself and that's what I've always done. So I've tried many of these things I'm going to advise patients on and have my own personal experience with it. So yeah, my boys are all in on this stuff. Like they've got their BCAAs or EAAs or all their protein powder. And when they travel, everything's in a container and labeled and their shaker bottles and they are, you know, all in, which is, you know, as their mom and watching them engage in these activities and this behavior is amazing, right? They, they're young, they're learning how to take care of their bodies. You know, they're in, they're in good shape to age. I love that. I love that they care about that. Yeah, that's great. Oh, they are, they are all in and they're all four big boys and they're always, you know, comparing muscles and who lifts more weight. It's, <laughs> it's like a locker room. I'm, I'm very glad that they're all out on their own now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I came across you on the Meet RX community um, website, which has a list of uh, doctors and practitioners who are very much pro animal-based diets. And I'm a besides being a health coach in two other areas, I'm also a carnivore coach. And I love it. I turned carnivore about 21, 22 months ago. And I came from the keto diet and before that, the paleo diet. And it seems to me yeah. like when we talk about nutrition, people, there's sort of a ladder and people just keep honing in on something more specific to achieve a specific fitness or health goal. And so for me, I love the carnivore diet. Um, what is your view of the optimal human diet? Like in, in terms of, let's talk about protein sources. Vegan well, protein sources versus animal protein. 
Well, that's that's really not even a question. I mean, well, it is, it is to a lot of people out there though who are very much in the plant-based world right now, and being marketed to to eat the faux meats, and you know, this is all part of our health equation. I hate that because when you look at bioavailability, there is no comparison of you know meat. Um, based protein, whey protein versus plant protein. It's not even, it's not even close. So you can eat X amount of protein, say 30 of plant protein, and you might actually absorb and use 10 versus a, a, a huge difference when you're using some form of um, meat or whey based protein. So there really is no, in my mind, and I try to stress this to patients, there is really no comparison. Obviously, like you said earlier, I try to meet the patient where they are, and if they are vegan or um, vegetarian, I have a very light conversation with them about how maybe that's not healthy for them and maybe they should think about incorporating other things. And I've had patients that have switched and done that, but you have to meet them where they are and try to work with them. You can't just be so dogmatic and brush people off and say, vegan's unhealthy, eat all meat and see you later, so. Right, absolutely. You have to absolutely meet your patient or your client where they're at. Do you see a correlation between a patient who comes in who's more plant-based versus animal-based in terms of injuries? I definitely do, and even more just in their general health. Um, I think that long-term veganism and vegetarianism is very difficult to do healthily and or impossible, frankly. Um, and you can just look at their skin and the glow about them and their eyes and their muscle build. And typically it's a vast difference. Someone that's eating a lot of animal protein is gonna have more muscle and vitality and health and general sheen to them that's a lot different. So I do see a big difference in, in patients. And I would tend to say that, like you tried to say is that there is a big push from a large group of powerful people to make us vegetarians and make us eat more plants and make us vegan. And I hope people realize that, that there is a big push and there is marketing and there is money and tons and tons of money behind this and that you really have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just don't jump on the bandwagon. So I, I feel like um, a lot of people that are healthy work out and they wanna be healthy and they kind of get into this well vegetables are healthy and I should eat more vegetables and maybe I should be a vegetarian. And I would definitely say those people that come in with injuries have a hard, lot harder time to heal if they don't change mm. ultimately their diet, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. In terms of how much protein we need to eat, let's talk about an adult female and adult male. How do they even, do you talk to them about how much to eat? What is the optimal amount and how do we even figure it out? And this is, let's talk about not the sedentary person, but the active lifestyle person. Yeah, I definitely talk a lot about protein and, and people are sometimes shocked to know I talk about it. And then they're even more shocked when they actually see how much protein they're eating. I, I had a patient recently and they we calculated and maybe she was eating 20 grams of protein a day, which is so horrible. It's just not anywhere near enough. Um, but in general, you know, there are, are probably different levels depending on where you are actively and what your goal is. 
And if you are active in strength building, I would push that goal up. And or if you're trying to lose weight, I would push that up. And so kind of a starting place about is about a, a gram um, of protein per pound. And I would go down on certain factors and or go up on certain factors. And so, and typically it's not just total weight, more of lean body weight. So for instance, a first person weighs, like I weigh 190 pounds and a lot of days I'm very active and I lift weights. I eat over 200 grams of protein a day. Some people would, you know, let fall over in their chair and think I'm going to get kidney failure and all this, but I thrive on it and I feel better and I love it. So, yeah. And I, so I, I'm five, five, I weigh a hundred and 18 to 120 pounds. And I eat about 130 to 140 grams of protein a day because I, I am very active and, um, I love building that lean muscle mass. And I find with my female clients more than my male clients, that there is a resistance to incorporating more protein in the form of animal-based protein too. And what I try to help my clients discover is their own unique health equation. And I, I stress and encourage them to eat more and more protein and that protein is non-negotiable. Fat and carbohydrates are negotiable based on you know, your, your health goals or your fitness goals, but protein's not negotiable because it serves such a huge, it, it serves a high purpose in our body with not just about building muscle, but back to the beginning of the conversation, it does so much more than just build muscle. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really difficult for people to wrap their head around that. And also they all think they're going to get cancer by eating, you know, a grass fed ribeye steak, which I eat sometimes two a day. <laughs> I know I love it. <laughs> what can folks do today to start turning their overall health around? Um, I would say three things that um, would be really good for people to think about. I would look at your diet real close and see how many things that you're eating that your great grandparents would have eaten. And if they're not able to eat it, probably you should get rid of it. If it comes out of a package, if it's some Franken food and you can't um, even understand the ingredients, probably get rid of it. So I would, I would tell people to really look at their diet closely. And I love dietary changes, but if you're too stressed or not sleeping, you might not get anywhere. So I definitely always talk about stress with people and ways to reduce stress, which sometimes are possible and more likely is a better way to deal with stress. So do you meditate? Do you go outside and walk? Do you have alone time? Do you do things to recharge yourself? Do you pray? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then lastly, sleep. You, you know, I think of those kind of as the three legs to the stool of health. And if you're sleeping well and you wake up rested, not too many um, uh, awakenings at night, um, those would be things to concentrate on. And there's lots of lifestyle things you can bring into all three of those things. But if you only improve one, the stool would still fall over. Or even two, sometimes the stool still wants to tip over. So those are kind of three areas of, of your life I would have people look at. 
And there's a lot of information on the internet, but you can get confused and it's, there's too much information, frankly. So find someone that's knowledgeable, go to MeetRx and find a coach, you know, find a doctor like myself or a different right. kind of practitioner that knows what they're talking and kind of guide you through these changes. Absolutely. And I also encourage to get a wearable. So I have on a whoop. I don't know if you know what the whoop is. Oh, you have one too. High five for the whoop. So I love this and you can get an aura ring. There's definitely different types of wearables. And in terms of like sleep, the first thing I do is check my whoop app to see, you know, where am I at today and how much um, energy am I going to have to output in my workout in this morning? Um, so I, I love all of that information. So key. And you're right. You've got to build a good team around yourself. And that team could be a functional medicine doctor with an integrative approach, a health coach, um, a nutritionist, um, a therapist, if you're stressed out, you know, I always stress building the team around you that's going to help support you and help you reach your health and fitness goals. What, let's just say someone is a cardio addict and they're listening to this podcast. What are three exercises someone can start on today to enter into the world of resistance training? Um, I definitely love the push-up. I think mm -hmm. a great place for people to start that are totally without any training is body weight exercises. And so I love to start with something similar, like a, like a push-up. And so obviously on the ground can be very difficult for people, but there are lots of ways to scale that back yeah. to a doable factor. For instance, like against the wall where you're, yeah. where you're pushing. So I think push-up is a great thing. I think squat is a great thing. Those are both two um, multi-joint um, motions that are great in building um, muscle and getting started. And the third, I would love to say deadlift because that's like my favorite exercise of all, but that's kind of a complicated one to do correctly without hurting yourself. So maybe some sort of pull-up would be my third. So you'd get a push exercise, a pull exercise, and then a lower body exercise. And again, the, the regular pull-up can be impossible for someone that has no training, but you can start by leaning back in a door jam and pulling yourself like that. And that can be your first mm. way to start. So there are definitely oh, ways that. to um, scale these exercises so anyone can do them. Um, you're going to get strength. You're going to get mobility. You're going to get balance because you're working with squatting. So those are all beneficial for anyone of any age. Yeah, I love those ideas. One of the things I love to take with me when I travel are the exercise bands, the resistant bands. They're super easy. They're lightweight, packable. You can take them anywhere and you can do so many things with them. So after you've established some body weight strength, I think a next tier would be resistant bands, you know, and you don't, yeah. people think they have to belong to a gym. And you don't there, you know, with the COVID lockdown, we've all learned better ways and other different ways to hit our goals and exercise being one of them. And there's so many resources online and, you know, ask around and see what you can come up with, but you definitely do not have to spend money and go to a big gym. Cause that can also be no, pretty intimidating. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It is so, intimidating. Yeah. Very intimidating. So we're coming to a close and I have one more question for you. And we've talked about nutrition a lot, but I want to know from you, what are your three favorite foods to include in your daily diet? Me personally? Yeah. 
um, if I had my choice, um, I would probably eat a steak every day, if I <laughs> but I don't necessarily. Well, you're from Texas. So what are you, are you a ribeye? Please tell me you're a ribeye person. Oh, I love ribeyes. All you right, good. Taste. Yeah, right. ribeyes are the best. All right. So I love, I love ribeye. Um, um, I'm a big fan of coffee and I love the taste of it. I know there are folks where coffee might not be the best thing for them, depending on what's going on for them. But personally, I feel like I'm pretty healthy. And that's one thing that I really look forward to. Um, the other, you said on a daily basis or favorite? All right, we can do favorite. If it's, if it's favorite, I, I'm a kind of a dark chocolate junkie. So I do mm. have a little bit of dark chocolate, but I only eat like a square or two of a bar on occasion. So um but otherwise, I'd say, um, and this might be kind of weird, but water. I mean, I think water makes so much difference in my performance that if I don't drink enough water and I try to drink close to a gallon every day, um, it affects my sleep, it affects my mood, it affects my skin, my recovery, everything. So. so what are your thoughts on plain water versus throwing in some electrolytes throughout the day? I think if you don't throw in electrolytes, you end up just peeing out the water. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of sea salt. You just put some sea salt in it. Or the thing that I've started using a lot lately is called Element, Element T. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a healthy, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's a, a healthy, for those listeners that don't know, it's a healthy um, electrolyte powder that has a lot of sodium in it. And then the corresponding amount of magnesium and potassium in it. Mm -hmm. And they taste really good and they're not bad for you. So I think that helps right. me. I, I have one or two of them. And frankly, I like the unflavored and I even put it in my coffee. Um, so I think that's great to help people stay better hydrated and perform better. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Fowler, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. I'm so excited to share this with all of my listeners. They're really going to have some great nuggets to take away. And I will be listing all of Dr. Fowler's contact information. He is not on social media like all of us um, crazy folks out here, but I will be sure to link his business and um, all the ways in which you can find him. And again, thank you so much for joining me and uh, everyone have a great day. I wanted to tell you, I don't know if you're yeah. cutting off, but oh yeah, um, you said that uh, functional medicine was the way of the future. I actually think one of the ways that we're gonna get healthier is health coaches. So, oh, well, I thank you so much for saying that. I think that what you do is so important and it, it, it bridges the gap between a good doctor um, and my patients where you are with them more often and on them more often and very, very much more helpful. And I, my goal is to incorporate into my, my practice at some point, but I think health coaching is definitely a way of the future. So. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. The, the school I went to is the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. It's one of the schools. I have three um, certifications, but that the FMCA is under the umbrella of the Institute for Functional Medicine. Yeah, I'm familiar right. with that. And so we love when doctors come and use us as a resource to hire um, health coaches within their practice. And uh, this, is a, this is a sad story, but I, have a, a, I had a potential client who wanted to come see me, young woman who was having um, some issues and health issues. And she went back to her primary care physician in Oregon. And he told her if she worked with a 
health coach, he would no longer see her. And oh, wow. so I, yeah. And so I absolutely love your open mindedness and how you see health coaches in the equation of healthcare, because that's what we do. We bridge the gap between a diagnosis and a lifestyle change where before some people would go to their primary care physician or OBGYN, whoever it was, and they would leave with, you know, maybe some papers and notes and just be completely lost and overwhelmed and maybe a little bit sad or depressed or anxious over a prognosis that they just received and not know where to turn. And, and that's why I love being a health coach. I love helping pull the equation together for someone and giving them the power to make the changes, right? We don't tell anyone what to do. We just help we were their co-pilot and I, and I love that you said that. So thank you so much. Yeah, that's awesome. I love what you do. And one, one of these days I'll, I'll have maybe a team of health coaches with me. It'd be pretty awesome. So. That's awesome. Well, thank you yeah. again, Dr. Fowler. I, I love how we just ended this podcast. I'm so glad I did not click off. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And thank you again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.